Now, this Jewish History Podcast is sponsored by Bill Cohn in loving memory of Michal ben Shmuel and Yehudit. May his soul be elevated in heaven. If you would like to sponsor a Jewish History Podcast or if you have any questions or comments, please email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. The Chazanish's activism once he arrived in British Mandate Palestine was not limited to building up the religious and Torah infrastructure of the land. He invested great efforts in establishing the political philosophy of the Yeshiva community, and like his work in building the Torah infrastructure, his political efforts endure until today. Indeed, for much of the history of the state, the political parties and ideologies that he led were heralded as the kingmakers of Israeli politics. In his day, the Chazon Ish waged campaigns against government policies and initiatives that he thought were unjust and harmful to the religious community. He also guided and advised religious politicians who heeded his advice. But he wasn't only an advisor to the politicians. He was, in fact, viewed by the political establishment, and in fact, even by David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, as the actual leader of that camp, of the yeshiva community's camp. And in fact, the prime minister visited and negotiated with him on matters of religion and state. The influence that the yeshiva community has on Israeli politics is today stronger than ever. And as I mentioned a few episodes ago, it's impossible to really understand the dynamics of the Israeli political universe. And of course, in general, that's a labyrinthine vortex of complexity. But you can't understand Israeli politics without understanding the positions staked out by the Chazanish during the very early years of the state. I think the best way to get into the Chazanish's thinking about the question of religion and state, I think we should begin with the fundamental ideological quandary. How must we view the establishment of the state of Israel? After all, for centuries and millennia, Jews have been pining, have been yearning, have been praying multiple times a day for the restoration of Zion, for the national return to their homeland, and to once again dwell in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of their ancestors, the land of Israel. And over the course of 50 years, that dream became a reality. The Zionist movement, with its various arms, with its various groups, began the process in earnest to found a state. Pioneers moved and began to settle the land and establish agricultural communities. Immigrants from all over the world began pouring into the land, and politicians the world over hit the pavement to get this done. And indeed, in 1948, in May, the British lowered their flag and the independent state of Israel was declared. The fledgling nation was immediately attacked by five better-equipped Arab states. These states, these Arabs, were hell-bent on squashing the nascent state of Israel in its cradle. But the Jews fought a spirited war, and they won, and the state was established. Apparently, the dream of reestablishing sovereignty in the land of Israel was fulfilled. Is the state of Israel indeed a fulfillment of the hopes and the dreams of Jews over the millennia? And it's really hard not to frame this question within the context of Jewish messianism. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read about the nation 
being gathered in from all the corners of the globe and coalescing back in the land. And this is part of a process called Messiah or the Messianic Age. Is the modern state of Israel fulfillment of these Messianic prophecies? Now, it's important to remember that the establishment of hegemony, of sovereignty, is only one part of the Messianic package. The sources say that the Messiah is heralded by a spiritual renaissance in the nation. The nation is going to reconnect to their heritage. They're going to return to Torah. There's going to be the building of the third temple on Temple Mount. There's going to be the reestablishment of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. At the founding of the state, it would be very hard to make the argument, to make the case, that this was the full implementation of the Messianic prophecies. But if it's not the Messiah, well, then what exactly is it? So the way I see it, I think there's at least three general factions amongst the religious Jews in the land as to how to answer that ideological question. Now, it's important to stress that these ideologies are not so clean, it's not so neat, like we're going to delineate. Of course, there's factions and there's sub-factions, there's different groups, and every person, of course, has their own opinion. Two Jews, three opinions. Of course, we're very hesitant to label people, to put people in a nice, neat box. But I think to understand the Chazanisha's attitude towards the state, it's valuable to contrast it with some of the other prominent attitudes present in the land. That's disclaimer number one. It's also important to note that these various positions as to how to view the state of Israel, these were each promulgated by absolute, unimpeachable Torah giants. And each position posited and promoted and espoused by these great giants, they have basis in Jewish literature. And of course, this podcast is not about polemics, but it's important to have this disclaimer that these general views regarding how to view the establishment of the modern state of Israel are each supported by great Torah sages. That said, there's three general opinions. You have the religious Zionists, and they view the Zionist movement as a religious ideal. And they view the establishment of the state of Israel as a religious or even proto-Messianic accomplishment. The religious Zionists would characterize the state as the flowering, as the sprouting of the Messiah, that may be the first step of a trajectory towards the eventual full-fledged messianic age. Maybe the state is not yet fully baked, but is going to mature into the messianic ideal. So this faction is going to warmly endorse the social, the cultural, and of course the political participation in the state. In their view, the wars of Israel are the equivalent of a melchemes mitzvah, meaning a mitzvah war. And the law states that whenever there's a war that is a mitzvah, that demands that everyone, even a bride and a groom, amidst their wedding celebration, they take up arms to defend the land and to fight against her enemies. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, you have the religious Jews who are categorically opposed to Zionism. Maybe we can call this group the Zealots. And they view the Zionist cause and the founding of the state as a blot on our history. In their view, the state is helplessly secular. It's irredeemable and must be uprooted for Messiah to come. They view the state as illegitimate and they choose to not participate in it at all 
not voting in the elections, not recognition, no participation whatsoever. I think the Chazonish advocated a nuanced approach as to how to view the nascent state of Israel. On one hand, it does seem like it's a partial fulfillment of our millennia of yearning of coming back to the land. Think about it. At its founding, the state harbored around 600,000 Jews. Now, today, that number has grown tenfold. There's more Jews living in Israel than any other country in the world. It's very hard today to make the argument that there are no messianic undertones in the state of Israel. On the other hand, it's really hard to imagine a state so distant from Torah, founded by people, many of them, who had expressly abandoned Torah, expressly abandoned religious life in favor of Zionism. Is this the fulfillment of the Messianic dream? So the Chazanish articulated a middle ground position, and he gave the following Churchillian axiom. The state is not the beginning of redemption, but it is the end of exile. The state marks a transitory step between the millennia of exile and the messianic redemption foretold in the Torah. And I think his political positions all flowed out of this perspective. He advocated strident opposition to the secular aspects of Zionism and the state, but he believed that religious and Torah Jews must participate in the state. In fact, he even said it's a mitzvah to vote in the elections. Must the yeshiva students join the army and wage Israel's wars? Are Israel's wars a mechemetz mitzvah, a mitzvah war that you have to take the bride and the groom away from their wedding? So during the War of Independence, my grandfather asked the Chazanish this exact question, and he said, no, this war is not a mechemetz mitzvah. However, he added the following caveat, there may come a time that the enemies of Israel are going to be very close on the doorstep of our cities, and then of course, when there is an immediate threat, when there's an immediate danger, we have to go out, grab the arms, and join the effort to stave off the invasion. And I think more broadly, I think the Chazonish had a vision of what the state could become. He was cautiously optimistic. He hoped that it could metamorphose into the entity that would be the messianic entity. He, in fact, made the bold and audacious and at the time highly improbable prediction that the religious Jews will yet outnumber the secular Jews in the land and that would enable the transformation into the land worthy of the messianic prophecies. At the time, the religious Jews in the land were a distinct minority But we can see, looking at the demographics and how they've changed, that this prediction was quite prescient. At the time of the founding of the state, the Chazanish already envisioned what it could become. In fact, he told my grandfather, perhaps the state is the last major challenge, the last test before Messiah arrives. What's this challenge? What's this test? We could posit that the Chazanish viewed the state of Israel, the secular state of Israel, as a challenge, is it possible to transform a state that was founded, for the most part, by secularists? Can that be transformed into a land bursting with Torah? And maybe there's multiple ways that that could happen. You could infuse Torah into the land and into the populace, 
But the Chazanish also viewed the transformation with a simple demographic analysis. He pointed out that the religious Jews at the time, and this is still true today, have very high birth rates compared to the secular co-religionists and secular co-citizens of the land. Moreover, there's an emigration and immigration imbalance. Every major American city has its diaspora of mostly secular Jews, and the Jews remain become more connected to the Torah, and largely the influx of Aliyah, Jews going and moving to the land of Israel, are, uh, they tend to be at least, more religious. And in fact, we're seeing this happening. There's been very dramatic demographic changes in the land. So that's how Chazanish viewed the state. Again, it's a nuanced position, but we do see how he had this almost clairvoyant vision of what the state could become. And in all matters of politics and state, the Chazanish straddled this fine line. On one hand, there's this very strong opposition to secular Zionism, yet there is full participation in matters of the state. So, for example, Yom Atzmut, the day of Israel's Declaration of Independence, is that a religious holiday? So you'll have the religious Zionists, and they will say, yes, they viewed the founding of the state as a major momentous religious event. The Chazanish says, no, it's not necessarily a religious event. Maybe it is the harbinger of future religious events, but not quite yet. And therefore, the question arose, on religious holidays, there are certain prayers, like the Tachanam prayer, that we don't say during the prayer, but the Chazanish insisted that on Yom Ma'ut, on the day of Israel's independence, they would still say the prayer because it's not a religious holiday. In fact, there were some times when the Chazanish was a Sandek, he was participating in a bris and a circumcision ceremony, and Anytime there's a bris, anytime there's a circumcision ceremony, you don't say the Tachanun prayer. And whenever there was a bris that fell out on Yom Atzmaut, on the day of Israel's independence, he would make the announcement that everyone should know that the reason why we're not saying Tachanun, the reason why we're not saying this prayer, has nothing to do with the founding of the state. That's not a religious holiday. Rather, it's because there was a bris. And then the fact that it even happened that once there was a sandit, there was someone who was participating in a bris on that day, and even though normally that would be grounds for the shul, for the community, for the congregation to not say tachnun, he insisted that they would say tachnun so that no one would get the false impression that he was promoting the ideal that Yom Asmut, the day of Israel's independence, was a religious holiday. So you have participation, you're voting, you're engaged in the dialogue and the discourse of the land, but you're not condoning, you're not legitimizing the secular aspect of the state. And like we mentioned in last episode, there were certain things that were absolute no-nos in his eyes. And he persisted and he fought with granite stubbornness. But other things, of course, were negotiable. So for example, one of the most controversial subjects, even until today, in the Israeli political universe is the question of the status quo agreement. This is an agreement that was instituted at the very earliest days of the statehood. This was a tacit agreement between the government and the religious communities that students who are Torah to umnato, whose Torah study is their occupation, these students 
would get deferrals from the army service. For the duration of their time when they're in the yeshiva, when they're studying Torah full-time, they are exempt for the army service. But if they leave the yeshiva, then they are required to conscript like all the rest of the young Israelis who have to go to mandatory army service. Now, that status quo tacit agreement was instituted at a time where there were maybe a couple of hundred yeshiva students who qualified. Today, there's hundreds of thousands of yeshiva students that qualify. And the critics argue that the status quo agreement is not going to scale to a world where there is a very large chunk of the populace that qualifies for this deferral. But more on a, on a fundamental philosophical level, the Chazanish espoused many times in his books and his writings that when someone is studying Torah, they're actually doing kindness with the entire Jewish nation. And he said a very deep and very controversial idea. You have two Israelis. One of them is studying Torah diligently, and one of them is a uniformed soldier trying to defend the homeland. Both of them are contributing toward the safety and security of the people in the land of Israel. However, the Chazanish would argue, and this is a position that is widely accepted in the Torah world in Israel until today, they would say that the yeshiva student is actually doing more to protect the land than the soldier. And the reason for this is that while the soldier, of course, is addressing the real threats of infiltration, of enemies, of terrorists facing the nation, the Chazanish would argue that the yeshiva student is creating this iron dome of religious protection that's not addressing the threat, but is preventing the threat. Whereas the army soldier is someone who is dealing with the threat, the yeshiva student is the prophylactic against the threat. Torah study, he argued, is a protective shield guarding the Jewish people and the Jewish state. And this is a very heated, very controversial issue in modern Israeli politics. In fact, one of the reasons for the recurring elections in Israel this past year is due to this question of should the status quo agreement be reconsidered? Should students, religious students who are studying Torah full-time, should they be given this blanket exemption, this blanket deferral of army service. And again, you have the yeshiva students who are arguing, and this again was codified by the Chazonish, that when someone is studying Torah, they're actually doing more to contribute to the security of the state than someone who is grabbing a rifle. That said, the Chazonish acknowledged that in the event that there were insufficient soldiers, it would be appropriate for the yeshiva students to abandon their books of Talmud to grab a rifle and to go actually defend the land. But until that point, he taught, and this, again, like we said, is a prevailing belief in the Torah world in Israel, that the yeshiva students studying Torah are doing more to protect the land than the soldiers on the front line. Again, it's a very controversial, a very loaded subject, but it's hard to argue that there were no miracles in Israeli military history. I, in fact, was a student at the Mir Yeshiva, the largest yeshiva in Israel, in 2006 when the Second Lebanon War 
was occurring, was raging in northern Israel. The terrorist organization Hezbollah was shooting Katyusha rockets from the southern Lebanon all over northern Israel. And that, of course, caused a war, 34-day war, in the summer of 2006. So normally, in the yeshiva, there is a schedule of the semesters, and in the summer, there's a three-week vacation. I remember this vividly. The head of the yeshiva, Rabbi Nassim Tzvi Finkel, he gave a lecture, and he said, our Torah study is fighting for the people, is fighting for the state, is fighting together with the soldiers on the front lines. This year, he said, there is no vacation. This year, we're not going to abandon our comrades, our brethren on the front line. We're going to be on the front lines studying Torah. And in fact, he quoted a source that says that it's not just generic Torah study that's there to defend the nation, but specifically when someone invests time and effort to come up with novel Torah insights, that is the greatest prevention, the greatest cause of security for the nation. So he urged and he coaxed all the students to try to immerse themselves in the deepest matters of Torah and to try to produce treatises, essays of novel Torah insights to present to him as a means of protecting the nation. So I remember when I delivered my treatise to him, there was a stack of essays on his desk from all the yeshiva students that contributed towards this effort. But this shows that this is not, you know, a, a philosophical idea, an abstract idea. In the yeshiva world in Israel, there is a belief that Torah study really does protect the land in a very tangible way. Now, the Chazanish was active on the ground guiding the religious politicians of his day. In fact, Rabbi Shlomo Lawrence was a member of the Knesset, a representative of the party called Agudas Yisrael, and he wrote a wonderful book called In Their Shadow, where he gives the inside scoop of the Chazanish's guidance to the politicians. And in that book, there's a treasure trove of stories and anecdotes on the advice and the guidance that Chazanish gave him. So, for example, he writes that during the Chazanish's lifetime, he never gave a speech in the Knesset, as a member of the Knesset, as a member of the Israeli parliament, he would give speeches, he would never give a speech before he presented the speech to the Chazanish. So once there was an election of the president of the state of Israel, and the president of the state of Israel is elected by the 120 members of the Israeli parliament of the Knesset. So the first president of Israel was Chaim Weizmann, and he was nominated for a second term. And the truth is that David Ben-Gurion really wanted to give that honor to Albert Einstein, who was still alive and living in Princeton, I think it was, in, in the United States. But he declined, so Chaim Weizmann was going to be the nominee of choice. And Rabbi Lawrence, this religious member of the Knesset, writes, quote, I had prepared a fire and brimstone speech arguing that a person who in his personal life symbolizes the revolt against Torah and who had been a long-time opponent of the old Yeshuv, he was unfit to represent the state. So he prepares this speech and he drops it off by the Chazanish, telling him, this is the speech that I want to give. So the Chazanish tells him, no, this is not the speech that you give. And the explanation is, before you speak, you have to know what you want to achieve with your words. 
Weizmann is going to be chosen by a wide margin. He's going to be reelected as president regardless of your speech. In that case, your words will have no effectiveness and there's no duty for you to protest it. Your speech is only going to damage the relationship that you could have with Weizmann. And you're going to cause him to have a grudge towards you and towards the British community on account of the speech. Bury the speech. He tells another interesting anecdote, what to do with the question of reparations. One of the most heated debates in the early days of the State of Israel was whether or not to accept the German reparations money or not. The Cherut party, which of course was headed by Menachem Begin, they called it blood money. And they arranged massive demonstrations in front of the Knesset, and they would even throw stones at the building to protest taking money from the Germans. So Rabbi Lawrence writes that he went to the Chazanish, and he asked him what should be the position of the religious parties regarding this question of reparations from Germany for the state of Israel. Now, the thing is, this was actually not on the docket. And it's interesting, the Chazanish refused to give him an answer. And he told him, quote, People think that I produce halachic decisions with the flick of a wrist, as if I shake them out of my sleeve. You should know that every decision that I make is at the expense of my own health. I pay the price with my own blood. I must mobilize all my strength to clarify the matter in light of the halacha. So if I have to make a decision, I have no choice. I have to sacrifice myself in order to reach a decision. But if I don't need to make a decision, it's just a question of curiosity. What's your belief on this issue? I'm not going to dig into it because it's harmful to my health and I cannot harm my health for the sake of your curiosity. And there's another story that he brings over here that someone asked a question to the Chazanish and a few days later he still has not gotten an answer. So he returned to Chazanish and says, I'm waiting for an answer to your question. And the Chazanish replied, do you think it's easy to come up with an answer? I am straining myself over this question to the point where my head literally hurts. When I feel that I'm no longer able to think, then I'll give you an answer. I'm going to push myself to the absolute nth of my ability to try to come up with the correct answer for you. Now, the Chazanish was not limited to an advisory role in the political questions and dilemmas of the time. He also engaged in political activism. In one instance, he advocated on behalf of a criminal. There was someone who was a convicted murderer because they had shot a home intruder. And the Chazanish felt that after eight years of serving his term, it was time for his sentence to be commuted, and he advocated on behalf of this criminal. But the area where the Chazanish fought the hardest and engaged in political activism the most was with respect to mandatory conscription of girls into the national service. Now, Israel is the only state in the world until today that has mandatory conscription of girls into the army. So like we mentioned, the religious students who study in the yeshiva, they have the status quo agreement, they have a deferral, and perhaps you can even get an exemption under certain circumstances, but that's for the boys. What about the religious girls? So during the early years of the state, there was a proposed law of mandatory conscription of girls into national service, not the army, but some sort of service that would benefit the public, like working in a hospital or in schools, 
helping children with special needs, helping in nursing homes, health clinics. And David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, he really wanted to push this law through the Knesset, through the government. Now, at that time, the religious parties were part of the government, but even if they left the coalition, the government would not have folded. And the Chazanish took a very, very strong stand against this law. And he organized public demonstrations. He invested Herculean efforts to blot the bill. But the bill passed the first of three parliamentary readings needed to make the bill into law. At that juncture, the Chazonish publicized what many thought was a very radical position. He publicized the idea that it is preferable for religious girls to forfeit their lives rather than to capitulate to this national service requirement from the government. And he had this ruling disseminated throughout the land. He had it plastered over billboards. He made sure it was announced in the shuls on Yom Kippur. This is the Yom Kippur a few weeks before he passed in 1953. And he stressed, this is a literal ruling, just as the Talmud tells us, and we know there's the three cardinal sins. There's three sins that you have to forfeit your life to not transgress. This is a subcategory of those three cardinal sins. And the girls, the religious girls, if they are called up by the government to have this forced national service, they must even give up their lives. In fact, he told his sister, Robinson Kanievsky, he said to her clearly, you have two daughters. If, God forbid, it comes to the point that they want to take them to Shirut Lumi, to national service by force, you should know that they must be willing to give up their lives, literally. And the question that people were puzzled with is, you know, why is it so bad? These girls, they're already after schooling. They're going to go to work. And at work, they're subject to the oversight of their male bosses. So what difference does it make if they go to national service and there too, they're going to be subject to the oversight of their male bosses? Why is this such a terrible violation that warrants this very strict ruling that they have to give the life to not transgress? So the Chazanish replied, when young women go to work, they're still under the authority of their fathers. However, if there's any custodianship over a woman other than that of her parents or maybe her husband, this already falls into the category of immorality. It's a subcategory of one of the three cardinal sins that you have to die to not violate. And this was a war that the Chazanish undertook. This is a very difficult battle, especially due to the fact that even some of the people, quote-unquote, on his side of the aisle, they were not convinced of the merits of this war. The plan, the law, seemed pretty benign. They wouldn't need to go to the army. They don't need to wear uniforms. They don't need to learn how to use weapons. They could sleep in their parents' home at night. It seems like this is no different than being a secretary. And there's an additional benefit that these girls are going to be spared the danger, so to speak, of being drafted into the army. And Rabbi Lawrence himself writes, I myself, this is a quote, I was constantly in the Chazanish's presence. I must admit that although I did not see Shirut Lomi, the national service, in a positive light from the beginning, 
I would have never have thought that it was as serious as it was. A true instance of Yehar Valyavar, which is, means you have to die to not transgress, had I not heard it from the Chazanish himself. So he had to convince people on his camp. In addition, the religious Zionist camp, they supported this law. For many, it would seem to be the lesser of two evils. It's way better than being conscripted into the army. There was also a concern that the tenuous status quo agreement would be jeopardized by fighting too hard on this front. Maybe if you fight too hard on this front to stop the national service obligation of the girls, maybe that's going to open the door to drafting the yeshiva students. And there was also the concern that opposition to national service could credibly be treated as treason. Chazanish, again, was clear. He's instructing people to disobey the law. He's telling them, if you get a letter in the mail that says you have to be conscripted to national service, you should not adhere to it. That could be viewed as treason. It could result in incarceration and punishment. So people didn't really understand where he's coming from. In fact, two of the religious Zionist ministers, they came to visit him, and they said to him, you know, we searched through all four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, of the Jewish Code of Law, and we did not find any prohibition against the National Service of Women. Where does it say, they asked the Chazanish, that it is prohibited, and in fact, it's something you have to forfeit your life, to not transgress? So the Chazanish gave them the famous answer. He says, the law is written explicitly, not in the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, of the Code of Jewish Law, but in the fifth section. But unfortunately, you don't have access to that book. Only I have access to the book. Only the real legitimate Torah scholars have access to the fifth volume of the Shulchan Aruch, and therefore you won't find it in your edition, but it is in my edition. And despite the entreaties of the Chazonish, there were members of the Knesset who were close to him who voted in support of this law. So one of those MKs, one of those members of the Knesset, received the following stinging letter from the Chazanish. This is a quote. My great love that I've always had for you does not allow me to stand by and watch your blood be spilled like water. Not by your enemies, not by your friends, but by your own hand alone. A spirit of folly has overcome you and led you to commit spiritual suicide. By defiling your soul in the eyes of those who truly fear Hashem, fear God, and in the eyes of the generation's Torah sages, and will leave you to be remembered in ignominy. The worldview that divides the Torah into different sections, with halachic rulings in one section, and life decisions in another, a worldview that one is obligated to obey Torah sages with regard to the first, but is free to make his own decisions with regard to the second is the same heresy that led to the deterioration of German Jewry and pushed its Jews to the point where the intermarried Gentiles and were lost forever. This distinction constitutes a distortion of the Torah and disgraces the Torah sages. Those who adhere to it are counted among those who have no portion in the world to come and are disqualified from serving as witnesses. So he's writing this very harsh letter to this member of the Knesset admonishing him for not adhering to his ruling regarding the law of national service for women, for girls. In addition to his lobbying of members of the Knesset, he sent a letter 
to the chief rabbi, Rabbi Herzog, urging him to get involved. Amid this maelstrom, David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, he reached out to the Chazanish and he asked to meet him. There's a very famous meeting that happened in autumn of 1952 between the prime minister and the leader of the religious community in the land of Israel, the Chazon-ish. And the first question that the prime minister asked the Chazon-ish, you know, we have a state here and there's different ideologies amongst the constituency. How are religious and secular Jews going to coexist in the new state? And the Chazanish responded initially that he believes that there's going to come a time that there's going to be unification amongst these various factions, and this is not going to be a question. But the prime minister persisted. What do we do until then? So the Chazanish responded with a parable with an analogy from the book of Sanhedrin on page 32. And the question that Talmud is dealing with, what do you do when you have two ships that are going in opposite directions in a very thin, narrow passage in a river? And if they both try to go at the same time, they're going to crash into each other. And if they go one at a time, then it's going to be okay. Similarly, if you have two camels that are going up a a steep incline and there's only room for one of them to pass by a a narrow narrow pass, if they try to go at the same time, they're both going to fall. But if one goes at a time, then it's okay. Which one of them gets precedence? So the Talmud resolves this, that you look to see what kind of cargo they're carrying. If you have one of the ships or the camels that is carrying cargo – then the other one has to yield to the camel or ship that are carrying cargo. So the Khanish responded, we have a disagreement. We have a conflict here. Your ship is heading one way. Our ship is heading the other way. Which one of them goes first? Which one of them takes priority? Which one of them supersedes the other? Our ship is laden with thousands of years of Jewish sacrifice. And therefore... Our wagon, our ship takes priority and you must defer to us. And the conversation pivoted to the question of compelling religious girls to do the mandatory national service. And the prime minister told the Chazanish, this law is going to be passed by the majority of the Knesset. And therefore, every Israeli citizen is forced to abide by this law. What are you going to do about that? So the Kharish responded firmly, even if you pass the law, we won't obey the law and we're stronger than you. And Ben-Gurion replied, wait a minute, we have a police force, we have an army, we have the power to enforce the law upon you. But the Chazanish insisted, no, it's not true. We're still stronger than your police force and your army combined. The might of the army lies in the fact that they can shoot you. But that only works if you fear the police. What's going to happen when you come to enforce the law and we bare our chests and tell the police, go ahead and shoot? Who's stronger then? You're going to shoot your own citizens who refuse to obey the law? It was a very powerful message that was conveyed to the Chazanish. In fact, David Mergoyon, in his diary, he wrote that he was very impressed 
with the Chazanish, and he did not see any overt zealotry, even though he was sure that there was some zealotry there. During the meeting, Ben-Gurion pledged to the Chazanish that he would maintain the status quo, that tacit agreement, that the tenuous arrangement between the religious and secular factions of the land would continue. Parenthetically, my mother told me the following story of a woman it was not a remarkable woman by any stretch of the imagination, but she merited to have children who were Torah giants. And someone asked her, what's your secret? And she responded that she had lived her whole life and revered the prime minister, the leader of the fledgling state of Israel, David Ben-Gurion. And whenever she would pray to God, she would pray to him that her children become as great as David Ben-Gurion. And then she discovered that Ben-Gurion himself was so wildly impressed with the Chazonish, so she altered her prayer and she started praying God, let her children become like the Chazonish, and that's why her children became very righteous and meritorious. Despite the valiant efforts of the Chazonish, including a last-ditch effort when he wrote a letter to Prime Minister Ben-Gurion, the law passed, but it was never actually fully enforced. Thanks to the tremendous outcry amongst the constituency of the Chazunish, the government was very reticent to try to enforce it. It was passed, but it wasn't actually implemented. The government realized that if they wanted to implement it, they would have to imprison thousands of girls, which of course would be impossible and non-viable. Rabbi Lawrence writes that he met Moshe Sharet, Ben-Gurion's successor as prime minister, and he confessed to him that Ben-Gurion miscalculated the situation. They thought that after they reached an agreement with the religious Zionist parties, the law would be passed and there wouldn't be the strength within the other religious party to oppose the law alone. What we did not comprehend, this is a quote, was the power of the Torah leaders standing at the head of the Torah community. Had we realized, we would never have started up with them in the first place. The war against mandatory national service for religious girls would prove to be the Chazanish's final battle. On Friday night, Parshas Vayera, in October of 1953, smack in middle of the national service debate, the Chazanish had a heart attack and he passed away. There's an interesting story that happened at the Shiva house after the Chazanish passed. There was a visitor from a secular kibbutz who came to the house of mourning. And he said that he saw signs plastered everywhere about this great rabbi who passed away. And he saw that he grew up in the town of Kosovo. And he realized that he knew the Chazanish as a youngster, as a child from that city. And then he mentioned to the Chazanish's relatives that when he was still quite young, the Chazanish asked him for a loan. And because of the war, he wasn't able to repay it. And one of the Chazanish's relatives says, that's you? You should know that the Chazanish would always tell us that when he was young, in his youth, he borrowed money from some person and he still has not yet returned it. And now, after he's passed, 
you're coming here. It's unbelievable. I'm so happy that I could finally repay that loan. So he took the money, paid him up fully, absolving the Chazonish's debt. The influence of the Chazonish is everywhere in the land of Israel. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of institutions that follow his lead. In fact, the current head of the yeshiva community in Israel is his nephew, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. His mother is his sister. And we see a dramatic story. We see a remarkable story of someone who believed that Torah can flourish in the barren wasteland of British Mandate Palestine. And indeed today, we are all witnesses testifying to the fruits of his handiwork. My email address is rabbiwolbajim.com. As usual, five-star reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts are always appreciated. And thank you so much. Until next time, signing off from the Torch Center in Houston, this is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, and this is the Jewish History Podcast.